Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. In the 2016 election, Donald Trump campaigned on a message of nationalism and economic populism. Since then, many in the Republican Party have warmed industrial policy, trade restriction, and trust busting. The dynamic global economy, populists claim, has enriched coastal elites while leaving, quote, real America behind. In this episode of Political Economy, I'm joined by Ryan Streeter to chat about the importance of a dynamic economy. Ryan is a senior fellow and director of domestic policy studies here at AEI. Earlier this month, he published the essay, Dynamism as a Public Philosophy in the Winter 2022 issue of National Affairs. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. The piece, again, is called Dynamism as a Public Philosophy. Now, I think of dynamism, I think of an economy where there's a lot of churn. And by that, I mean there there are companies starting, there are companies going out of business, there are workers getting hired, workers being fired, new companies starting up, old companies disappearing. Uh, so that's why I think about dynamism. Is that what you mean? Is that part of what you mean? Could you define that word, uh, you know, for the context of your excellent essay? Sure. That is largely what I mean, but I think dynamism is a larger concept than that. In fact, that's a, a part of the reason I wrote this essay in the first place. Dynamism is, I think of churn like you do. Lots of firms starting, lots of firms uh, uh, shutting down, people getting hired, people moving to new firms, people getting laid off, that sort of thing. That's a that's a con- concept in the literature that's pretty well established. It's also, when you think of it, dynamism only that way, you omit other aspects that are important to a dynamic society, which I think are important to, to mention. So there is the... Uh, the rewards to creativity, for instance, in a dynamic society, right? So that churn that you're talking about is is what's happening because people are coming up with new ideas. Um, People are capitalizing those ideas. People are starting new firms. And it's that ideas environment that I think is especially important. Um, As we've watched over the last few years, a lot of people kind of on the political right join people on the political left in decrying dynamism. This churning marketplace that you're talking about is a source of instability and insecurity, and therefore um, calls for greater social insurance, greater remedies to the effects of dynamism have been sort of in vogue lately, kind of across the political spectrum. And what's often left out of those criticisms of dynamism is what a dynamic society actually means that's, that's truly positive. And that is when you have a society where people are thinking up new things and starting them, you get the benefits of those ideas um, all the way downstream, um, better jobs, um, more better jobs, uh, jobs that people are happier with and the like. So, so I, I accept the definition that you use, but I think it's a broader concept. And I get into this a little bit in the essay and some of the origins uh, for, for, for why I think this, that are really important to this idea of dynamism as a, as a, as a not just an economic concept, but a cultural and social concept where, whereby people are rewarded for being creative, um, where the incentives to take chances and take risks because the returns are good are actually real incentives. And I think we're, we've, we've gotten to a point where some of those incentives are at risk of being lost. And that's why I thought it was important to, to lay, lay out some of these ideas. 
Um, all that sounds fantastic, you know, ideas, reward, but most people are not entrepreneurs. Uh, mm -hmm. Most people are not, quote unquote, creatives. Why is it an important factor overall for sort of the common good? Yeah, it's it's important for a couple of, of reasons. First of all, when you have people who are those who are starting things, and they, these can be small things. I'm not just talking about Silicon Valley great. I'm talking about Midwestern great. I'm talking about a greater proliferation of dynamism at the grassroots, which I think is is important. And these can be firms that start out with three people and grow to ten, you know, and that and that and that's all they become. But if you have more of those, you have an environment that is more fulfilling um, for the people that are undertaking that activity. And I get into some, some of this in what I what I write. There's a there's a decent body of literature showing that happiness is very much correlated with the fulfillment of potential. You know, making your way to something great is just as satisfying as the outcome, the rewards that, that come in pecuniary terms, for instance. So it's, it's an environment where satisfaction is deeper and richer for those who are starting things. But secondly, um, it's also a more satisfying environment for people who are employees. And as you, you mentioned, the majority of people are not entrepreneurs. I mean, mathematically, that is true. Mathematically, most people are going to be employees for all of their career. But what doesn't really get discussed uh, as much as it probably should is that in societies where you do have a lot of dynamic um, activity, and, and by society, I should be a little more micro and even talk about regions, you know, because I think we have dynamic regions and places in America and we have places that are more stagnant. If you go to places where um, there is more of this churn that you're talking about, um, you actually find that job satisfaction is pretty high among the workers. And that's what, I, that's what I think gets missed in these debates that we're having about the instability and security that comes from dynamism, is that on the ground, when, when people are living in a place where there is a lot of churn, it's not that, that there's a, a big new startup that shuts everything else down. That's usually the boogeyman sort of picture that, that gets trotted out in the media and the politicians like to use. But the, the reality on the ground for most people is that if you're in a firm that's going to close, there are options elsewhere that you can hop to. Job hopping and moving from firm to firm is actually a pretty common way for people to move up um, in, in, uh, to experience upward mobility in America. But there's some, some pretty interesting evidence by combining certain labor market data and other types of survey data where you can, can understand this relationship between living in a dynamic place and actually being happy with your, your job. And I think it, the evidence is actually more on the side of hourly wage earners are actually happier when they live in a place where there's a lot of dynamic activity going on. So um, what's sort of implicit, and I should just make explicit in, in what I'm saying here, is that it's not just the things we can measure as a matter of economics, the things we typically talk about, like people's incomes growing or stagnating and the like, that's obviously important. But there's this understanding of happiness also being a function of fulfillment of satisfaction, moving towards goals. And this is well, we, this is you know part of Western civilization. And we talk a lot about the debate between liberty and security in America and in our inequality debates, we talk a lot about income and, and we should. Um, but there's there's another strand of, of thought that's 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 you know goes all the way back to the Greeks. You see it in the founders, you see it in Abraham Lincoln, you see it in the, in, in in our history of the ability to start making build things is 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 um is a source of fulfillment that's really fundamental to to who we are. And so this notion of satisfaction, along with increasing incomes, I think is is important, and I think we we should consider it as a matter of policy, um, just like we consider measures of income a matter of policy. I think to some people, this sounds like, I think maybe what they will call some sort of elite concept, that there's a lot of people, what they want is uh, they want a steady job and they would like to stay at that job. 
I think they would they would say that uh, dynamism is only about a half step away from disruption. So isn't dynamism just a somewhat nicer way of, of saying that what we should be pushing for is a public philosophy of constant disruption or even here we go, creative destruction? <laughs> yes, one could say that. And I, I would argue that we should say something different. Um, right. Will, will there be destruction? Will there be disruption anytime you have a dynamic society? Yes, there will. And there will be if you have a stagnating society in other types of ways. I would say two things to what you just said. First of all, the activity of creating new firms, small, whether they stay small or they grow large, when you have more of those as a share of overall businesses, it's, it's better for job creation. It's better for job satisfaction, all those things that I was talking about. And so one way of actually talking about dynamism isn't disruption, it's the um, increase of opportunity for people to satisfy the vocational ambitions in multiple ways. It's, it's better to have 10 firms in my town that I could work for rather than one. And what a dynamic uh, economy does is it creates more of those so sorts of opportunities for people. And so that's the first thing I would say. And related to that, um, Coming back to a point that I made earlier, I think grassroots dynamism is, a, is an important concept. I, I don't think that the creation of new firms is just an elite activity. If we're getting to the point where it's requiring fancier degrees from fancy schools and a lot of lawyers to start firms, that's part of that's part of the problem. And that's part of the policy environment that we should should fix so that you can actually have um, more people at the grassroots starting things that they might not otherwise have had the incentives to do uh, in a less dynamic place. Um, the second thing that I, that I would say is, um, yeah, I, I think the the notion of stability and in maintaining a particular job at a particular firm over time is idealized in ways that don't necessarily match with reality. I've lived in Germany for two years of my adult life. I love Germany. Um, I have uh, friends in Germany. Germany is a great place. There's so much about about the country that I like. And when you're there for a short time, you can't help but to admire that phenomenon that you're talking about. Germans are particularly well known for this. Get a job after school, stay with it your entire career, enjoy the social insurance program that, that surrounds you, um, don't move far away from home, participate in local customs. It, it, you can see why um, kind of a, a, a pro-worker conservatism might kind of idealize that. It turns out the job satisfaction in Germany is not very high at all. Um, this, this notion of kind of stability over time doesn't necessarily result in greater fulfillment um, in a greater sense of what's possible. And it's and it's also related to the inability of an economy like Germany to be particularly innovative. Great engineers, they make really great things. They don't create a lot of new stuff. They used to, um, but they've grown more corporatist over time. They've become a social insurance state. They've they, there, there are a lot of things to recommend that to uh, to someone's mind who really values stability. But at the end of the day, if you if what you care about is people's sense of satisfaction and their happiness with their life choices. I wouldn't look to that as a model. I would, I would look um, at a place that has a lot more dynamism with a lot more options for people to job hop around. That's, that's something that our most dynamic places do in this country and, and in other parts of the developed world. And there seems to be a lot of job satisfaction there. So I'm, I'm placing a lot of premium on job satisfaction, but I think that actually matters. And it matters that, that matters as we know for productivity as well. Um, you really start out the piece talking about how supposedly pro-worker conservatives or nationalist populists on the right, uh, they've emerged. Uh, they have a lot in common with uh, a lot of mainstream progressive policy positions. What caused the emergence? Is it the emergence just that a lot of a certain kind of voters flooded into the Republican Party? 
Um, so the politicians adjusted. What I mean, what what happened there? Why 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 is there such a uh, why why is that such a huge factor that is really transforming uh, certainly the Republican Party and what it means to be a conservative? Great question, and there's probably a couple answers to it um, because it's a complex question. But I think the the roots of this kind of move towards a national conservatism predate the Donald Trump era, but really got kind of put on steroids during that time. And there there was a kind of a prehistory to national conservatism after the 2012 election, the makers and takers election, the, 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 you know, the Mitt Romney got criticized for using that term and this notion that, that the Republican Party had focused too much on CEOs and, and on the entrepreneur class, the elite entrepreneur class at the expense of, of hourly wage earners. And a number of us, a number of us were, have, were involved in that, that effort to say we should have policies that actually aim to boost the overall um, income and social standing of, of people that didn't go to college, that didn't get four-year degrees. And I think that all had had its merits. So there was a lot of, of work that was done in the ensuing years on policies uh, along those, those lines. When we came to 2016, we saw this kind of heartland working class turnout for Donald Trump and that appeal. And then you started to see a lot of justification for what that actually meant um, in terms of policy agenda items. And it was really after that kind of Trumpian phenomenon in terms of turnout, that I think a lot of people on the right overinterpreted what that meant in terms of what working class people actually want. And um, the there was kind of a jump from the observation, this classic Hume is ought problem. There are a lot of people voting for Trump. Therefore, we ought to have more policies that serve these people in along the lines of what we think, which is greater worker protections, wage subsidies, enhanced funding for, for child care, free, you know, uh, su supporting community college in, in new ways and the like. And so there's there's been this this drift over time to try to come up with a policy agenda that works that works for working class people. And as an overall principle, I support that. I imagine you support that. A lot of us support that. We want working class people to be in the best policy environment. Um, I'm not sure there's a lot of evidence that there's a lot of support for those types of policies among the working class. And we do quite a bit of survey work at AEI and we've written about this, that it seems that these sorts of issues appeal more to actually more affluent, more college educated people than the actual working class itself. Um, the working class itself in America still idealizes this notion of a, a starter economy. They, even if they're never going to start a company themselves, they place a pretty high premium on the ability of their kids to do that one day. They still believe that America is a place where people can make and build anything that they, they dream of. Um, in some of our surveys, they're more likely than people who are richer than they are and more highly educated they are to, to believe that. So, um, so I, I actually think there's been a misinterpretation over the last five or six years about what working class people want. And part of the, the idea has been, I think, not to be too politically cynical about it, but to come up with an agenda we think will appeal to those voters. And I've been arguing that I, I'm not even sure that that's what those voters want. In fact, I'm quite sure it, it doesn't. But the, the effect has been in our policy debates that a lot of people on the right, a lot of people with, you know, just, there, there are a number of people in Congress who've kind of embraced this and it's certainly become popular in, in the kind of the world that we work in of policy wonks and writers to have sort of joined the left in debating what type of social insurance structure we should, should have. And even in the recent Build Back Better debates, when you actually look at the public record of what Republicans were, were saying over the last year, um, typically criticizing the overall package for being too large, and it was, and I share that assessment that the, the package was too large, you don't find as, as much kind of vociferous opposition to some of the policies themselves. I mean, there's a lot of conservative support for expanded child credits and all those things. 
We can deba debate those, those issues on their, their merits. But the sum total is that the Overton window or the policy frame, as political scientists like to talk about, it, has really shifted to this, this place where when we're talking about domestic reforms, we are really preoccupied with getting the social insurance sort of environment right and spending a lot less time, uh, very little time, talking about what a, a dynamic economy would actually require um, in terms of policy reforms. And so, you know, part of what I've been arguing, what the reason that I wrote this essay was to try to sh help shift the debate back to some of those questions again. So you have a lot of politicians who look at the political landscape and suddenly they have a, a certain kind of voter voting for them that perhaps they didn't in the past. So they took a bunch of policy ideas sort of off the shelf, which were typically sort of left of center progressive policy ideas. And now you have this overlap between the two sides. So the ideas, and we're going to get to them that you talk about, are those ideas that are fairly new? Uh, were they always there, but they were ignored? Why did Republicans latch on to, or at least a lot of Republicans latch on to industrial policy, family leave or, or child care, expanded mm -hmm. family allowances? Why do they latch onto those ideas rather than sort of a, a center-right workers agenda? Yeah, I think that there's there's overlap and obviously the two sides don't see things eye to eye, to eye on every issue. So there are these issues of overlap. One of them is, you, you, and you mentioned some of these, one, one of these is the child tax credit um, idea, expanding basically cash for families that have children where there's been sort of a confluence and agreement that that's the way you deal with unaffordability, that life has gotten expensive for people with kids. And so if we give them more cash to, to pay the basic bills, it leaves more um, in, in the bank account for other sorts of things that are important that their, their children need. And that's, that's been, been an argument that a number of conservatives have been making for the last decade or so. And it comes down to this understanding of how much it costs to raise a family, where I think there's some legitimate disagreement debate, even at a place like AI about that. But you've seen a lot of conservatives get comfortable with the idea that because life has gotten so expensive for people, that we ought to have the federal government actually help fix that gap a little bit. Um, I think the support for wage subsidies extends from support for the earned income tax credit, and this idea that we can use federal policy to boost wages from where they are to a certain uh, desired place. And then, of course, there's been more um, acceptance uh, on the political right in America over the last decade or so for ideas about like what the China shock has done or what, what's happened to the industrial heartland where you've seen a lot of jobs leave. And this, this understanding of trade and globalization is something obviously that was a, a wedge issue between Democrats and Republicans for, for years. And it's been one that you've seen a lot of, of sympathy on, on the right for. Of course, the, the goals and some of the political rhetoric are very different. You know, the, the, the concern about the intact traditional family on the right is what grounds a lot of support for the tax credit, whereas on the left, that concern is not there. The support for it is, is for other reasons. And so I think that the a, a lot of where we are right now is the result of conservatives and conservative policy analysts, you know, trying to think seriously about some of these issues that really started to emerge about 10 years ago or so about the future of people in this country who lived in kind of flattening economies in parts of the country that weren't really growing all that much, people that didn't go to college, people that were not kind of in the you know right uh, sectors of, of the economy, what we should be doing about that. And those were all, I think, 
uh, exploring those issues were legitimate. They there was a real reason to do it. I mean, you know, Charles Murray is one of our own, and when he when he wrote Coming Apart, um, you know, almost ten years ago, a lot of us were persuaded by the arguments that we have a problem here, and and the the goal was to try to figure out what to to do about that. I think where we've ended up though is is in a, a situation where we have um, a, a group of policies that when you put them together, you know, I kind of call it the making work a little less painful um, that, you know, this idea that we're just going to have to endure sort of um, unstimulating uh, employment uh, if, if you're a kind of working class worker and the best we can do is sort of pad that a little bit with extra money in the bank account, a little bit more, uh, a few dollars an hour on, on top of your current wage to, to make life a little uh, less costly. And that's about the best we can do. And uh, I'm not ready to say that's good enough yet. Is our culture as accepting of dynamism and risk as we used to be? Or given your description of Germany, have we become more German? I love this question because I ask this question a lot of people that I know, and I get these very different answers. In the political class that you and I sort of live in, because we, you know, we're unfortunate enough to live in the DC metro area, and, and these are the people that we have to spend our time with, the answer is typically uh, dynamism is bad, or we should be really skeptical of dynamism. We need more security. We've had enough of it already. There's an, you know, inequality in America, stagnation, all these things are the result of it. Um, I also have a lot of other friends, apart because I've moved around a lot and lived in, in places where I've been surrounded by people who are business owners, um, small business owners, and also people that invest in, in kind of heartland business, uh, people in, in private equity, people maybe who started out owning a company, bought another one, and eventually kind of moved into private equity. And I get a very different answer from this crowd. Um, there's a lot of optimism. Um, there's a view that we have a lot of grassroots self-starters out there in America, a lot of people starting and building things, and we could have more if we had a policy environment that was more favorable to them. And a lot of these folks, because what they do every day, they don't have the policy ideas in, in, in their minds. They just know that there are certain things that have gotten harder to do. It shouldn't be as hard to get a permit. It shouldn't be as hard to get certifications. It should just be easier to do things. There's tons of, of kind of pent up potential out there. So you get very, very different, different answers to that. And part of it um, may be because we aren't just one society in America, we're, we're many. And there are parts of the country which have stagnated for a long time and have been in recession kind of in an ongoing way for a long time. And then there are other places which are truly dynamic. Um, I kind of call it the, uh, the construction crane effect. I know when I've moved around, every time I move into a place where there's construction cranes, you have the sense that, you know, things are getting better. Things are improving. Things are moving forward. There's lots of, there are a lot of businesses and a lot of people engaged in the reason for why those construction cranes are there in the first place, because they moved there and created a new demand for housing or because they're starting new companies that need to be built. But I can take you to some places that are just an hour from where I grew up in Indiana, where there hasn't been anything new built in, in 30 years, you know, and if you live in that community, you can really feel like things are stagnating. And when we're analyzing the data on this, we're looking at both of these, these sorts of these sorts of phenomenon. And so I think I think we have um, cultures of dynamism around the country. Um, I tend to think that in these places that have stagnated, it's been through a waning of dynamism and not because dynamism caused those conditions. And, and so the question becomes, how do you recover some of that um, in a more localized way around the country? And I, I think that's where policymakers should be focusing their attention more. And the, uh, the piece does conclude uh, with a whole, a whole bunch of policy ideas, everything from uh, things about workforce development to Make it easier for people to get, you know, licenses and, and permits, starting a business. The one that jumped out, which I want you just to explain, is uh, the uh, summer and the study abroad programs. Why would that be important? 
Yeah, no, it's good. I mean, all of these by themselves are sort of boring. I mean, that's the interesting thing about a dynamism agenda is, you know, the Build Back Better agenda, each item, free community college, it's more money for families with kids. Each of them sounds exciting. And then you roll them all together. And most Americans are like, that's like too much. Ryan, I'm excited by your, I'm, I'm very excited by your agenda. Very excited. <laughs> okay, I was going to say, with this one, you take each individual one, like making it easier to get technical certifications through the better use of technology, making it easier for people to move from one town to another to, to pursue an opportunity. Like all of those sound kind of small uh, individually. When you roll them together, uh, I think they actually make for a pretty exciting uh, agenda item. The reason that I included that one is that you know, there's quite a bit of, of evidence that when you are still in your formative years, I mean, especially if you're you're in that kind of like nine to 12 year age, but even in your teen years, um, when you are exposed to something that's fundamentally different than what you know, it has an outsized impact on your aspirations, your personality, the kinds of things that you, you think about, and maybe even what you want to do with your life than if you hadn't done it at all. And so, you know, I, 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 and we've experienced this in our own family just because we have lived overseas and taken our kids over there. And now my kids both live overseas. That's the price I'm paying for having dragged them over there when they were younger. But, um, but aside from, from my own personal situation, I think you can, you can see the benefits of these programs when you talk to people that have been, been in them, or if you read some of the, the, the psych literature on this, that um, it makes a big difference in what people kind of aspire to. It makes them willing to perhaps um, pick up and move and pursue something that they wouldn't have done before. Because if you spent the summer, um, you know, working on a farm um, in Australia, if your kid does that, you know, for a summer, don't be surprised if they want to one day get a job in Australia, they might, they might want to do that too. But that experience of something that's different than other going through it and coming out on the back end, you might've been nervous at the beginning, you come out on the back end and you say, that was a fantastic experience. It actually kind of whets your appetite for more of that. And so if we want people that are more adventurous or willing to take risks or willing to pick up and move and go experiencing something that, that is, has an unknown quality to it, I think one way to, to start is to help younger people do that, and particularly lower income kids whose families don't have the resources to do that, to help them do that. So I, I could get behind even public spending at the school level on something like that. My guest today has been Ryan Streeter. Ryan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much, Jim. Thanks very much, Jim.